Hello, welcome to episode number 126 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong, hope everybody's keeping well. In this episode, we hear from Umut Azak of Okan University here in Istanbul. In our conversation, we delve into this summer's decision to convert the Hagia Sophia from a museum to a mosque, looking at the deep history of calls on Turkey's religious rights to take that step, and considering what it all means for the future of Turkey's current dominant religious nationalist status quo under President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. But before we get started, first let me remind you that you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you various extras including transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, including a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal, which gets you a whopping 35% off the price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles, including physical books, pre-order orders and ebooks. As a member, you also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. Finally, I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that I send to members with every new episode, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, all you have to do is pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now let's get on with our conversation with Umut Azak. I started by asking her whether she was surprised by Erdogan's decision to convert the Ayasofya at this particular moment. Uh, I was surprised, but at the same time, I knew that that would happen one day. Why? Because, you know, if you look at the speeches of Erdogan, you know, back in 1980s, in 1988, for example, when he was president of Istanbul branch of the Welfare Party, he stated that that's his dream, the opening of Hagia Sophia again. And if you look at his background back in the 1970s, if you think of what he was reading, if you look at the political party in which he gradually rose up, you can see that, you know, the, this Ayasofya issue was always important. So it was always uh, in the agenda. That's why I was not surprised, so it's not something new. But at the same time, because it was always postponed, so I was thinking that, okay, it will be postponed again to another time. Now, let's take the story back really right to uh, the conversion of the Hagia Sophia to a museum back in the early 1930s. Could you just take us back to the atmosphere of that time? You know, how was that decision taken and what were people saying about it at the time? Was there criticism going right back then or was it a more kind of low key decision that was taken by the early Republican authorities? I 
Okay. First of all, the issue Hagia Sophia debate begins later. Okay, back in 1930s, you cannot really see a debate about it. So we are talking about single party era and not so much freedom of press, and we cannot really talk about any critique of the museumization. Okay, from today's perspective, we can interpret it as a continuing attack on this specific understanding of Islam, you know, also a kind of attack on Islam by the secular regime. But actually, at the time, no parallel was uh, seen, no parallelism was seen between the two. Why? Because even before the proclamation of the Republic, already in 1922, the Sultanate was abolished, and Hagia Sophia had already lost its imperial meaning. So it was no more an imperial mosque. But it doesn't mean that you know, Hagia Sophia was not used as a mosque uh, in 1927, it was renovated. An architect was commissioned for restoring the dome, for instance. So the, the Republic was also taking care of the building as well. But in 1930s, things begin to change. In 1931, an American archaeologue, Thomas Whittemore, is in Turkey. And in June, he's given permission to unveil the mosaics of Hagia Sophia. So the story begins there, actually. And he begins to work in December in the same year and after six months or so he gives a report to the president of the Republic, Mustafa Kemal. So there, there is an already like an archaeological study going on in the building uh, while the place is still a mosque. Two years later in 1934 a report is prepared by Minister of Education. A report which recommends the government to open the building as a museum. So that's the beginning of the story, actually, because after that, another report was being given in November. And at the end of the same month, the decree comes. Okay, So the decree by the President of the Republic, signed with, by all ministers. Now, going back to the Hagia Sophia, this cause of, you know, breaking the chains in quotation marks and returning Muslim worship to Hagia Sophia really returned to the agenda in the 1950s with the advent of the multi-party era and uh, democratic elections in 1950. And the critics of its conversion to a museum really then started to advocate for its return to Muslim worship. And they said the Hagia Sophia's museum status was this insult to the Muslim Turkish nation. They saw the Hagia Sophia is this symbol of you know, the Muslim Turk's strength and a victory over the Christian West. Could you just talk here about how the debate re-emerged in the 1950s? What was the context and what were people saying? First of all, let me remind the logic behind the conversion into a, a museum. In the degree, there is a very interesting part which describes, you know, this decision as a contribution to universal science. So it is the, the fact that the mosque is being converted to the museum is seen as giving a gift to humanity. You know, Turkey at the time, it's the Turkish regime at the time, is trying to prove that Turkey is part of the quote-unquote Western civilization, which is based on science. Okay, so that's emphasis on science is important. But unlike this official framing of the conversion, there was another perspective. Already in 1920s, we have an alternative nationalism, a kind of romantic nationalism, a kind of different nationalism vis-a-vis -vis the nationalism of the Kemalist regime, which emphasizes 
the Ottoman past, Ottoman civilization. This is the romantic nationalism of the famous poet uh, Yahya Kemal. Okay, Yahya Kemal, we do not associate him with Islamism, but for the pioneers of the Ottomanist nostalgia, which emerged in 1950s and later on, he was very critical. So he, what he was uh, doing was kind of a nostalgia for the epoch of uh, Mehmed II. He had published articles describing the Ottoman civilization as the zenith of Turkish history, etc. But this discourse, this kind of Ottomanist uh, romantic nationalism, could reemerge or resurface only after the transition to multi-party politics. So from mid 1940s onwards, different versions of Turkish nationalism could begin to be expressed. For instance, we can talk about some conservative nationalist or Islamic publications, such as Great East of uh, Necip Fazıl Kısakürek, or Sebil Reşat of Eşref Edip, or Serden Geçti, published by Osman Yüksel Serden Geçti. And we can also talk about some associations, different nationalist groups, in 1952, in April 1952, they published a brochure. They described Hagia Sophia as a magnificent sign of Turkish power and glory. And they claimed that, you know, the Hagia Sophia as a museum is a real betrayal and its status as a museum is unfair and cruel. So they also uh, wrote an open letter to Menderes. Bekir Berki was the president of the association of the time. He said that Menderes, the prime minister, should open Hagia Sophia as a mosque again. He should end this spiritual torture. Okay? So in short, you know, this Hagia Sophia issue can be seen in the framework of a revival of a Ottomanist nationalism, uh, which is centered around the nostalgia for the epoch of uh, Mehmed II. In other words, Hagia Sophia became the symbol of an alternative conservative nationalism which rejected or which criticized the Kemalist one-party era nationalism, which they thought neglected the Ottoman imperial past. And what about the authorities at the time? So we're talking about this debate re-emerging in the 1950s, and that was, of course, the era of the Democrat Party, which was elected in 1950. The prime minister was Adnan Menderes, mm -hmm. and he was prime minister from 1950 until 1960, when he was overthrown in the military coup of that year. And his government and his leadership was really deified by the right. So mm -hmm. why didn't he respond to these calls to reconvert the Hagia Sophia into a mosque? Yeah, it's very interesting. Somehow, uh, Menderes, as you said, you know, was uh, respected a lot, especially because he had ended the Turkish call to prayer, and Arabic call to prayer was again, you know, could again be recited from May 1950 onwards. So he was seen as a Muslim president, but he didn't do anything about uh, Hagia Sophia. Why? Uh, one factor is Celal Bayar. Celal, we know that Celal Bayar was even against ending the Turkish call to prayer. But more than Celal Bayar factor, the international context was important. At the time, in 1952, uh, Turkey became a member of NATO, and Turkey-Greece relations were very well. And uh, Mendes' government did not want to harm this, you know, this peaceful situation. The interesting thing is here is that the peace was based on friendship, based on a common enemy. Okay, The common enemy at the time was communism. So it was it was an anti-communist pact. 
and NATO was the linking international institution. So in this international context, Mendes government did not want to risk this Turkish-Greek friendship. And even in late, I mean, we can't say the same thing for even later governments as well. So internationally, it would be a very daring step. They could guess that somehow they would receive a huge reaction. But it's full of paradoxes. While Menderes does not do anything, doesn't make any step for answering the demands of conservative nationalists, Hurriyet newspaper begins a campaign around Cyprus issue and campaign against patriarchate. So that's an interesting period, you know, that uh, gradually Cyprus issue is emerging. And although in 1950s we can say that the Ayasofya issue is relatively less linked with the issue, it will be when the Soviet issue again is, is in crisis in 1964, a link between Hagia Sophia and Cyprus will be constructed by conservative nationalists. In later uh, years, in 1960s as well, as a response to the Cyprus issue, as a response to the Greek government, the Turkish government is invited to open Hagia Sophia as a mosque. Okay, So they think that this would be a clear uh, message in conservative nationalist publications. This is a uh, Hagia Sophia, again, begins to be used as a symbol in order to prove Turkish power and Turkish independence. They think that Hagia Sophia should be converted to, to a mosque again. And there was also the uh, NATO issue, you know, so Turkey was a NATO member and it didn't want to upset the apple cart and damage any relations with their new NATO allies, including Greece. So in a way, understanding that there was that sense of restriction in the past, it was it's kind of interesting to think about today, really, because now, you know, when they reconverted it a couple of months ago, when the government and its supporters kind of praised this reconversion and talked about it as something that was done really in spite of the West, you know, as a sign mm -hmm. of... Turkish national sovereignty mm -hmm. and striking out against people not caring about what they think. They may be thinking about this earlier period and in put in that way, it kind of makes sense. You know, previously these right-wing governments couldn't take this kind of step because they were worried about the international reaction. But now they don't really care about that. And indeed, uh, you could even argue that condemnation from the West is probably what they actually welcomed and even not even encouraged them more because it helped feed into this narrative that was uh, underpinning the motivation of reopening Hagia uh, Sophia as a mosque. So in a sense, there is that when you look back at this earlier era, you do realize that there is this shift mm. in political possibilities there. Exactly. So now the international context changed. Probably today the risks are much lower, or at least today Erdogan could calculate that uh, reactions, extreme reactions would make his point even stronger. Because the, he framed this decision as a reflection of Turkey's sovereignty. And for a long time, if you look at the publications in 1950s, 1960s, and later years, you see the same emphasis. The fact that Sophia was converted into museum was seen by these publications as betrayal in a sense. So it's uh, the way they describe it is giving Hagia Sophia to the West. The, and the West is imagined actually is associated with Byzantium as well. The status of a museum is imagined as the victory of the Christian West in general. The status of the museum was, according to them, a step along the Greek and Western, you know, nationalist projects. 
But here, you know, we, that's not only about Greece. The conquest of Istanbul by Mehmet II, the conversion of Hagia Sophia Church into a mosque, all these are symbolizing in the minds of conservative nationalists the victory of Turks over the West. Okay, It's the victory of Muslim Turks over the West in general, Christian West in general. It has a huge uh, symbolic power in that sense. And it has a huge emotional power as well. The new status of Hagia Sophia now as a mosque somehow creates a big pride. You can see, you know, if you observe those people who attended the first prayers right after the opening of Hagia Sophia in July, you can see their excitement. For them, it's more than just the opening of a mosque. It symbolizes uh, the superiority of Turkish and Islamic power over the West. Okay, so that's uh, that gives them a big self-confidence as well. So we're talking here about the ISOF. It's been really at the exact crossroads of you know Turkish nationalism and Islamism really since the 1950s. And mm-hmm. it's always been there as this kind of an aim for many different political persuasions on the right in Turkey. And amid this latest conversion, some have said that it's actually counterintuitively a last card really that's played by Erdogan in this cause. It's always been teased and you know occasionally bubbled up in the last few years. But the the idea of actually following through with this conversion now is actually, some people have argued, a sign of desperation because people didn't expect him to play it so early. It's kind of a trump card that could have been used when you really need to pull a rabbit out of the hat. And Erdogan is quoted, you know, back in the late 1980s when he was the Istanbul provincial chair of the Welfare Party. He was saying that this is what we have to do. We have to reconvert the Hagia Sophia to Muslim prayer. So that just shows, you know, it's been right there for over 30 years in his political career and the debates go back to the 1950s and the fact that it's now been done after years of teasing and holding back on it for a rainy day perhaps some people are arguing that that's a sign of desperation what do you make of those arguments do you agree yeah, I agree. Somehow the party is in crisis, you know, it, it tries to keep the spirit alive, you know, the spirit of the, maybe the initial years of the AKP. So it's, of course, not surprising that to see that, you know, the symbol, again, somehow created a kind of unity, you know, within the party. So it's kind of, again, strengthened, you know, the original ideology. So, yeah, I, I mean, I would agree with this desperation story but somehow I also think that because that was in the agenda for a long time you know so at some point this would happen and maybe they were looking for a good timing and in that sense it's a time when you know the economic situation is not that well and all the founding founding members of the uh, AKP are not anymore within the party. Maybe for Erdogan, it was very successful tactical step to again unify all potential supporters around one symbol. And there are, you know, on a related note, there are increasing signs as well of uh, society, in a sense, slipping away really from the political Islam project. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk in certain outlets about this project of political Islam, this generational project failing, young generations not being interested anymore, and, you know, increasing sort of polling evidence that suggests that uh, the, the new generations are not as motivated by this stuff anymore. There is this kind of sense that political Islam is kind of a previous generation 
nation's cause. And there's also a sense that figures in the government, perhaps even Erdogan himself, sort of recognise that this is happening and they're trying to reverse that tide. And perhaps, you know, this Ayasofya reconversion can be understood in that context as well. You know, the government taking desperate steps, as you say there, to re-energise its mission. What do you make of those arguments? Do you think that's perhaps part of of this tendency? Yeah, when you use political Islam, the end of political Islam, the failure of political Islam, maybe political Islam has already failed. Okay, so we should see AKP not anymore as the party of political Islam, but it's a party which somehow departs from the you know nationalism, you know, and the conservative nationalism. Actually, you can also uh, you can claim the same thing for the Islamists of earlier periods as well, but compared to even welfare party of 1980s, you can see a clear nationalist turn within the movement right now, a clear anti-Kurdish stance, a clear emphasis on Turkishness. And in that sense, what we see is not success or failure of political Islam, but what we see now, the rise of Turkish nationalism in a new version, okay, the rise of conservative Turkish nationalism. So, Aya Sofia, I think that even those young generations of, let's say, conservative circles, okay, uh, or let's say children of AKP members, maybe they didn't know about the Aya Sofia issue. But thanks to this steps thanks to this july conversion they now know okay so this is like a legend which is revived so in that sense it's a not only an islamist legend so it's a nationalist legend which gathers around itself nationals of all versions in that sense i find a very tactically strategically successful step hmm I mean, some have also suggested it's contrary to that in a way. It's actually this conversion is a symbol of the AKP and Erdogan sort of retreating to its Islamist core, you know, in a bid to hold on to its supporters as it understands that, you know, it's facing these struggles. And you can also see something perhaps similar in the way with this debate on, you know, the recent debate on withdrawing from the Istanbul Convention on Violence Against Women, which came as a result of um, religious groups campaigning for it and pressuring the government to do that and take that step, although the debate has gone quiet recently. There's also this kind of rising anti-LGBT rhetoric and other indications that the government is kind of retreating to this conservative core in a way and the ISOFIA is perhaps part of that as well. I mean, what do you make of those suggestions? I don't think that Ayasofya cause, okay, Ayasofya issue was defended just by Islamists, okay, so that's that was a common ground, common cause for nationalists and Islamists. So in that sense, it's a kind of unifying symbol, like the Society of Nationalists of 1951, which could collect all the nationalist groups, you know, more secular and uh, more Islamic ones all together under its roof. So today, AKP is doing the same, you know. So in that sense, you know, it is uh, not only proving that it's going back to its Islamist roots, it's proving that it can be still attractive for all conservative nationalists. It's not probably not very attractive for secular nationalists, but definitely very appealing step for right-wing nationalists of all types. 
And just to conclude, I wonder if we could kind of maybe look forward a bit as well. You know, we're talking here about this as a huge cause that's finally been addressed. And indeed, in many ways, the way that some people talk about it, it's kind of the last castle, really, the final consecration of a very long running political project that, as you say, there unites various factions of the right in Turkey. And I just wonder, you know, what could be next? You know, if that was useful as a motivating symbol of victimization, now that's finally been redressed and the government effectively reigns supreme in all these cultural areas. What happens next? I mean, obviously we're seeing sort of foreign policy steps that are unprecedented, but perhaps domestically, does that kind of achievement of that final goal suggest a crisis, you know, with nothing else left to do? Or are there other symbolic conquests to, to achieve now? What could be around the corner? Uh, quote-unquote conquest had already begun, you know, Taksim, so it's not accomplished yet. Taksim Mosque is under construction, so we'll, we'll see the big performance of its opening soon, I guess. Timing will be again important, I don't know, but that will be the next, I think, big ceremony, very symbolic step on the way of unending conquest. And I don't believe that this can ever end, you know, so this rhetoric is very central for AKP's ideology and this rhetoric of conquest will continue with maybe with other symbols. Well, there we go. That's another one to look forward to. That was Umut Azak. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 126. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% IB Taurus Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So please send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And lastly, don't forget to check out Turkey Book Talk's partner initiative, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razie Akkoch and Diego Cupolo, friends of Turkey Book Talk. It's a very useful weekly package that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days. Arriving in your email inbox every Thursday, Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Just search for Turkey Recap on Twitter or Google to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Bütün dünyanın gizli